Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. Brief news, if you'd like to do any of our inexpensive retreats, we have one coming up on September 26th to the 29th. We set it up so that there's times for movement, hiking, uh, connecting with teachers and so forth. So it's a great way to experience getting away from the city. September 26th to 29th and then October 24th to 27th. So they both uh, they both start uh, on Thursday night and end on Sunday. If you can only get there on Friday morning, that's fine. Um, and because uh, really that's when the real stuff starts. The second one's at a Korean retreat center, and so it's uh, up in near Hudson, New York, right in the middle of the leap keeping season. So there's beautiful hiking trails at both, lots of nature. So, um, yeah, if you're interested, look at the Dharma Pumps with an XNYC website. We don't add any costs. We just pass on the costs of the center, and then you can donate whatever you want for the teaching. But we try to make it as affordable for everybody, and we encourage the centers to have slight scale so that people, you know, people can afford it. Uh, tonight, we're going to be talking about procrastination, perfectionism, and avoidance coping. We're going to be exploring the underlying psychological mechanisms and we'll be talking about, of course, ways to address stalling techniques or stalling behaviors and then we'll be employing some of these techniques in the meditation. So hopefully this will be worthwhile in some sense. Procrastination is a classically emotionally driven behavior. It's defensive. People who procrastinate or who don't, who uh, struggle to get certain tasks done, are by no means lazy or uh, don't have enough energy. That has nothing to do with it. Um, these are. Emotionally driven behaviors or defensive behaviors uh, are essentially our unconsciously activated systems that protect us from doing something that causes or could cause emotional pain. So we'll be talking about that and we'll be talking about uh, how it works. Uh, it's no different from things like panic attacks or binge eating, compulsive behaviors, uh, social anxiety, uh, sudden dysregulated emotional events, uh, dissociative episodes and so forth. It's not in any way has anything to do with somebody's lack of willpower. These are when people procrastinate or stall or avoid certain uh, growth-oriented choices in their life or address uh, moving on to new stages in their life, it's driven by 
processes that are trying to protect us, but they are doing it in ways that actually uh, actually hinder our growth. So all of the brain is set up essentially first and foremost to protect us from anything that was dangerous or painful in the past. It wants us to avoid experiencing any kind of threat or emotional pain. Now while it's obvious with threats, if you uh, reach your hand into a bush to pick a blueberry or a raspberry and suddenly you get bit by a snake, of course for the foreseeable future if you reach your hand into a bush you will be hesitant, you'll feel nervous and all of the your right amygdala will activate tremor and anxiety and that's just to protect you from a run-of-the-mill physiological pain that you experienced in the past. That's pretty obvious. People know that if they fall from uh, a bike, it's difficult to get back on a bike immediately afterwards and the longer you take, the more difficult it is because the amygdala doesn't on its own learn that bikes are safe. It, you have to just unfortunately get back on it. But we're not talking about physiological pain, we're talking about emotional pain. Human beings are attachment species. Our first core drive, our overwhelming core drive is to connect and attach with other people. That's what allows us to regulate our emotions and our nervous systems. That's what allows us to feel a secure base in the world so that we can explore and go out and uh, make new social connections and develop skills is the feeling that we are well connected. A child, as we know from all mammals, will prefer any form of attachment or connection over food, over even warmth. We are born with the need to be seen in the eyes of others, to feel we matter to other human beings. That's what our entire psychological well-being is founded on. So the most distressing events for us are times in our life where our connections or our attachments are threatened. When we expect to get love or appreciation from a parent and instead we get disinterest or shaming or judgment, or we expect to get recognition and approval from peers and instead we get embarrassment and humiliation when we expect to get we expect to matter to someone we love and instead uh, we get disinterest from them so all painful all emotional events that have to do with disruption of attachment or connection are extremely emotionally wounding and the brain is set up through processes uh, known as neuroception, and there's so much good literature by neuropsychologists today about it. But the brain is set up to organize our behavior so that it won't happen again. To avoid situations where we were rejected, abandoned, shamed, where we experience disconnection is one of the first and foremost organizers of our behavior. So the right hemisphere, which is largely unconscious, but does steer our actions and our 
uh, emotions and our so much of our behavior will first and foremost avoid any situation where in the past we experienced a socially wounding event. So hours after we expect to get some kind of appreciation or uh, connections with someone, but instead we get the cold shoulder or they don't show up or they look at us with complete indifference or they uh, outright uh, judge us or uh, scorn us. The <clears throat> there are biochemical and electrical processes that create circuits that crisscross the entire hemispheres of the brain that are set up to uh, remember these events by storing all the sensations that were present when we felt abandoned or criticized, but also to remember the emotional states we were in and the impulses to survive that we were experiencing. And so these circuits are vast and they're very, very durable and they're very, very, very difficult in time to override. So let's look at an example. If you're in, a, in second grade, or maybe you're seven years old, and the teacher's having the children do finger paintings, and the teacher appreciates something that you've drawn, you know, and then the teacher asks you to show it to the class, and then all the other kids laugh and point and make fun of you. And for you, at seven, that's a disaster. <laughs> You feel now singled out. Your all of your felt sense of security is now jeopardized. So very quickly, your right hemisphere starts to set up neural circuits, synaptic connections that will protect you from this ever happening again. It will remember that okay, when I was vulnerable and showed something that I did to other people. And, and people looked at me, I felt vulnerable, abandoned, alone, and the impulse I had was to run away and hide, right? Or to get nervous because I felt, and that was my survival. So, years, decades pass. Now you're in your 30s and a friend asks you to speak at her wedding and you quickly agree because you want to do something for your friend, but as the date comes closer, you start to get nervous. You start to procrastinate. You, it's difficult for you to prepare your talk or to think of what to say. Every time you want to settle down and write what you're gonna say, you find yourself looking at your phone or looking at your emails, or looking at eBay, or Instagram, or Facebook, or something. And before you know it, another night has passed and you haven't prepared a word of what to say at your friend's wedding. Well, why is this? Well, of course, the prospect of speaking in front of people is activated that early circuit that says doing something in front of others leads to humiliation and abandonment. So it triggers the early emotions you felt of wanting to run away, of not wanting to do it, of wanting to hide. 
And then anything else around you in your where you live or at your office or wherever will feel better. You'll want to do anything else but that, so you will procrastinate, stall, and avoid it. That's in uh, short term uh, the way it looks. Uh, I'm going to delve a little bit deeper though. So, but it's worth knowing that fear memories are the most durable memories. You can forget pretty much anything, but you will never forget something that's made you frightened. People, if they are five years old and get bit by a cat, if they don't see another cat and have a lot of interactions with cats, when they're 85 years old and a cat runs up to them, they'll be terrified because those circuits don't degrade. They're overdetermined. They have multiple branches. They are deeply supported because the last thing anybody's brain wants us to do is to forget things that are associated with emotional pain, abandonment, or threat. Um, they are implicit, which means we don't get to choose when they're activated. And they are activated or triggered by what's called state-dependent recall. What that means is something in the present reminds you of that painful experience in the past is similar enough that it activates the early survival mechanism that was installed in that circuit. So suppose somebody grows up with uh, with a caregiver that suddenly at times goes very cold and makes the child feel abandoned or vulnerable. The child will then remember all of those facial expressions on the parent's face that happened right before the abandonments or the serial disconnections. And that person any time in their future life as an adult starts to see someone creating the same facial expression, even if it has nothing to do with abandonment or rejection, they will start to feel that the dorsal dive and the depression will kick in and they'll start to feel uh, abandoned. The great neuropsychologist at NYU, Joseph Ledoux, the most um, highly regarded emotions uh, neuropsychologist in the world um, runs the emotions lab at NYU uh, and has written so many award-winning books summarizing the emotional brain noted that he gave an example he said imagine a couple at a restaurant uh, or maybe an Italian restaurant and uh, they're going through a breakup and it's really depressing and sad, and they're both looking down at the tablecloth as they have this painful meal where they acknowledge that there's no future for the relationship. Well then, in the future, Ledoux said, if either one of those, the, the, the individuals in that relationship that, uh, that broke apart, see someone wearing a checkered shirt in the exact same pattern, of checkered that the tablecloth, they would be expected to suddenly feel sad, depressed, uh, without any hope, with a feeling of 
just stopping and wanting to just, you know, retreat. It's simply a shirt, but your right hemisphere doesn't know that. It simply knows that during one of the more painful experiences of your life, that sensation was present. You see that sensation again. It triggers the emotion you felt in the original event. That's what triggering looks like. So the present sensation activates the old emotion, which can be shut down, fleeing, attacking, running for your life, just disconnecting. So procrastination, avoidance, coping, and perfectionism are always emotionally driven behaviors where we unconsciously are trying to avoid doing something that in the past was associated with rejection, vulnerability, disconnection. So let's use a classic example. Somebody's in a job where they feel, they feel totally unfulfilled. They're not being well remunerated. They feel they don't have any uh, possibility of growth. In fact, their job is in some way uh, belittling in the sense that it doesn't uh, allow them to express some of their most uh, cherished skills and abilities. Yet this person, oh, month after month after month, doesn't take the initial step to get a new job. They stall putting together a resume. They stall looking up numbers um, or headhunters to talk to. They stall even looking up other jobs or, you know, even though they're deeply unhappy in their job, unfulfilled, the something prevents them from moving forward. And their friends are confused. Well, you hate your job so much, why not try to get another one? But they're looking at that person from a logical perspective, but procrastination is not a left hemispheric logical, it is right hemispheric, it is driven by all the core emotional circuits that are there to protect us. So why does the person stall? Well, suppose this individual at some point in their life, maybe they were uh, eight years old and their parents switched the school they went to, and then they went to a new school, and when they got to that new school, people weren't friendly. They felt odd and disconnected, and they wished as a child they could have just stayed at their old school, even though it wasn't a very good uh, environment. They felt uh, emotionally, in some way, wounded by the shift. So, of course, in their adult life, Trying to get a new job activates that circuit that changing my context to something unknown equals abandonment, loneliness, emotional pain, isolation, disconnection. And so they will do anything. Their right hemisphere, unconscious, will constantly, when they think about taking any step forward, will trigger what's called negative somatic markers. What are those? They are physiological discomfort. The person will start to feel uncomfortable 
they won't even really be consciously aware of it, but their body will start to tense, their stomach contract, their breath will become more shallow, their shoulders will begin to hinge up. Their right hemisphere is saying, don't do this. It's sending a message that the rest of the brain picks up saying, I don't want to do this. This is bad. Everything else in their environment, their phone, their laptop, their you know, bag of Doritos, I don't, whatever is around will not trigger negative somatic markers. They can look at anything else and their body will relax. Unconsciously they'll realize, oh, everything but looking for a new job is making me feel good and they will do that. So, anything that causes emotional pain, if there's something similar to it in the present, will activate avoidance coping. That's the way it works. Anything we avoid doing that we need to do in our life, that we put off, is because this new possibility is associated with vulnerability. Change is a form of vulnerability. New contexts with new people, vulnerable. Developing new skills, vulnerable. Expressing ourselves creatively, really vulnerable. Double vulnerable because it feels like our core self could be rejected. So all of these are classic areas where we can expect um, procrastination. But there's even more because the most classic form of procrastination I see in my work in counseling is when people are in unhappy relationships, but they continually, instead of finally acknowledge that they're not feeling, uh, their attachment needs are not being met, they're not feeling any degree of uh, deep intimacy in their lives, but they keep putting off ending the relationship. Well, why is that? Well, of course, in childhood, even though with one caretaker they weren't getting their needs met, the idea of disconnecting from their parents was terrifying. So deeply ingrained in them is that need to keep trying to get love or their attachment met from someone who can't give it. So they will stay in a relationship and not take any moves to end it. They will stall because it would activate the same amount of fear that a child who try to give up on their relationship with the parents. The amount of annihilation they would feel would be overwhelming. So fortunately, though, there's good news. Um, one is that fear circuits can be adapted. So if you do, for instance, fall off a bike before, of course, the, the fear circuits are activated that makes it terrifying to get back on a bike. If you get back on it quickly, then you override the fear circuit being ingrained. But suppose the bike accident was really somewhat traumatic and you take a while to get back on a bike. And then, well, now it's terrifying. You'll feel really frightened. So you need to do it very slowly with support. You'll need to microtask it, make it as manageable as you can not push yourself, not go to the same place where the accident was happening. You'll need to ride slower and you'll incrementally, through what's called exposures therapy, train that fear circuit very slowly 
that it's safe. So you're, every time the fear circuit is activated, you get back on the bike, but in a very moderate way, and you show this fear circuit that it's safe, and now the fear circuit adds that information, that certain kind of bike riding in certain conditions is safe, and then you build on that until you can once again commute to work or whatever on your bike. It's slow, it's incremental, incremental, what has to be done in micro amounts, but people can overcome all kinds of fe learned fear in their life. That's known as, the clinical term is called reconsolidation. So that's one way of addressing a fear circuit, is just pushing yourself very slowly with a lot of support in a very incremental way to do something. But there's another way, and that's what we're gonna be focusing on tonight. Um, as I mentioned, people don't do what is logical. We do what feels good, and we don't do what feels bad. That is what human beings do, as Damasio and Leslie Greenberg and all of the neuropsychologists know. If something creates negative somatic markers, and you are not aware of those negative somatic markers, you will not do that activity. However, if something activates positive, easeful, pleasant somatic markers in your body, you will do that. If you'd like to read more, you can read the uh, award-winning work by Damasio and his book, uh, The Cards Error. Essentially, human beings always do what creates positive somatic markers. So. What does this mean? For instance, you go to a restaurant and you're faced with two choices. One is grilled cheese sandwich, not particularly healthy or nutritious. One is the kale salad. Mm -hmm. Now, if you haven't had a kale salad before and it looks to you, you visualize it and it creates the image of eating essentially field greens, then when you see the word kale salad on the menu, it will subtly activate negative somatic markers. Your stomach will tense, your shoulders will slightly contract, your breath will become a little bit more shallow, your jaw will lock, your attention will become jumpy. When you look at the word grilled cheese sandwich, do I need to say anything more? For virtually all human beings, their stomach relaxes, their attention settles, their shoulders relax, their chest opens, they feel good. So what do you think they order? In order for somebody to do something that's difficult, we need to change the underlying somatic marker, what the Buddha called the Vedana. We need to actually associate the difficult activity with something that creates positive somatic markers, positive data. Well, how do we do that? Well, one way is, of course, you can, right after you do something, you push yourself to do something really incrementally that's really difficult, and immediately after you do that, you reward yourself. You eat chocolate, you go to your favorite website, you get a <laughs> massage, I don't care. You do something that feels really 
pleasurable. You go out and you brag, you call up your friends, say, guess what I just did? I did something really difficult. And they go, hooray, and you feel good. So you've associated, you've now begun to associate the difficult task with connection, appreciation, love, regard. If you keep on rewarding yourself, eventually, neurally, you'll start to feel good when you think of that task. At first, you'll have to reward yourself again and again and again, but over time, that activity, you won't need to follow it up with a reward. It will, on its own, through what we know from Pavlov's experiment, the dog which hears the bell every time it gets fed, eventually the dog responds positively just to the sound of the bell because it now has associated this bell with something pleasant, food. So if you associate an unwanted task with reward, you do it again and again and again, never criticize yourself, never judge yourself. If you try to do some writing that you need to do, you don't, nothing comes out, never, ever, ever judge yourself. Because what you're doing is then creating negative somatic markers, so you're gonna even want less to do that activity. But if you reward yourself simply for sitting down at the laptop, for even writing a sentence, no matter how small, no matter how little you get done, you will start to create positive somatic markers. But through the magic of visualization, and from what we know from uh, a wonderful Harvard uh, uh, study, we can actually create the feeling of positive somatic markers without even rewarding ourselves. We can actually visualize something that feels really good and then we can hold in our minds the task that we've been avoiding, especially if we associate that task with something that has to do with connection, appreciation, love. You create the positive somatic markers and then hold in your mind the task you've been avoiding you do that often enough, you'll actually start to associate that activity will actually start to trigger positive somatic markers, what the, the Buddha called Sukha Vedana. And on the other hand, what we start to do is the things that we distract ourselves with, the iPhone looking at the, the, you know, the texting or Instagram, what we can do is actually slightly lessen the amount of positive feelings associated with those so they become less attractive alternatives. So we're actually now ingraining or literally creating neural circuits associated with all kinds of activities, exercise, uh, applying for a new job or a new school or um, doing some writing that we've been avoiding or whatever, we positively create, we're literally creating positive markers, making us more and more inclined to do those activities. This was very much in the heart of the Buddha's teaching, Yatha uh, Bhutta Nana Dasana, and much of his, um, the Dharma engaged having people change the visuals associated with certain activities that cause suffering and creating negative feeling. As the Buddha noted in the Paticca Samapada, people do and act depending upon how they feel. So if you can change the way you feel 
in your body about things, then you'll change the way you behave and act in your life. So we're actually now going to be putting this into practice in the meditation. We're going to first relax ourselves, soothe ourselves to a good baseline state, and we're going to visualize a task that we've been putting off, and we're going to associate that task with, we're going to actually manually create pleasant sensations. So thank you for listening. And now find a really comfortable seated position. A nice sigh actually engages the parasympathetic nervous system and actually begins the process of relaxing. Mm. So let's start with a few breaths that will target key areas of the body to start the process of developing the state of ease. So take a full in-breath through your nose and squinch the muscles in your face. These are the cranial nerves. And we want to tighten them and then breathe out slowly through your mouth. And relax, soften the muscle, the, uh, the, the brow, the forehead, just allow that to feel stretched. And then soften the micro muscles around the eyes. And then soften the muscles in the cheek. And then try to take the two corners of the mouth and stretch them wide so that your mouth isn't pinched at all. It feels very just long and flat and affectless, very. And then release any tension in your jaw if you clench your jaw, just try to relax, just create the most soothing expression, easeful expression. Encourage your eyes to, to like float about in the pools of the eye sockets. They're not in any way needing to move anymore, encourage them to take a little bit break. Imagine that this is like two little, the eye sockets are two little chambers where your eyes can just lie back and relax. When your eyes settle, your mind will follow. And so let's now take another full in-breath and lift your shoulders up like you're trying to reach them above your head, just really high, and then rotate them back like you're opening up your chest and then drop your shoulders so that they're lifeless with the out-breath. And just allow your arms to hang or if they are on your knees, just make them utterly relaxed. Try just to keep your hands in the most comfortable, lifeless position. No need to put any effort there. Your shoulders are back, so your chest is open. That's where the vagal break, which helps with heart rate. And if your break, vagal break is released, or set, I'm sorry, uh, it will slow down your heart rate, your blood pressure. 
So nice open chest, sending a message up to the right amygdala that we're safe. Not under any threat. And now for our third complete in-breath, balloon your belly out as you breathe in. Like you're breathing into your belly, your in-breath is ballooning, expanding your belly, and then as you breathe out through your mouth, gently soften all the muscles in your belly so that you feel the sense of ease spreading through your belly as you breathe out. So let's spend some time just in silence. And we'll like try to incline the mind to stay with the anchor of the breath. The anchor is simply a sensation that you don't create that is happening on its own. So just become aware of the breath in your body, wherever it's most naturally apparent. For some people, that's the chest or the sensations at the tip of the nose, or for some people, even the abdomen. Just know when you're breathing in, know when you're breathing out. If your mind feels jumpy, there's a lot of thoughts or whatever, a lot of images popping up. There's a lot of energy in your awareness. Very, very long, very slow outbreaths. The longer your exhalations, the more you engage the parasympathetic, the ventral parasympathetic, which relaxes you. On the other hand, if your mind feels tired, sluggish, drowsy, a degree of brain fog, it can't stay present, then put all your attention on the in-breath, make the in-breath far longer and bigger than the out-breath. If you're really tired, when you breathe in, open your left eyelid, and then as you breathe out, close it. When you breathe in again, open your right eyelid, as you breathe out, close it, and so forth. If it's difficult to stay with the breath, then try to make the breath slightly, exaggerate the feeling of the breath in the, your body so there's more sensations. And every time your mind wanders, the most important thing to do is not judge yourself, not get frustrated. The moment you become awake to the fact you've drifted off, just take a wonderful, rewarding breath and associate awakening with pleasure. Open your chest, 
if it feels authentic, smile, or if not, just, just visualize something that makes you feel a degree of pleasure, but try to associate emerging from a thought with a sense of recognition, accomplishment, and then just gently return yourself back to the breath, other sensations in the body, the sounds. All we're doing is just foregrounding all the feelings in our body and allowing our thoughts to stay in the background. Most of our life it's the opposite. We keep our attention pinned to our thoughts and remain unaware of how we feel, how the breath is. So this entire practice is simply rebalancing. Just don't push away any thoughts, just let them be little characters wandering around in the backstage of the theater in your mind and keep in the foreground your breath, how your body feels, the sound of the room. So we'll just now sit in silence for a while.
hopefully you've cultivated some degree of ease or at least some degree of settledness. And what I'd like you to do or invite you to do is take a moment first to just scan down the front of your body, starting with your forehead, your eyes, your mouth, scanning down to your throat, your shoulders, your chest, belly, and just looking at this area to note any sense of openness, lack of action impulse where your muscles are twinging or anticipating movement where there's a degree of disengagement in the body. Or do you feel tension? Just try to get a sense of what state you're in through the somatic markers, which would be first just how does the body, especially in the front, feel? You might also know the quality of your breath. Does your out-breath feel long and relaxed? Are your eyes settled or are they fidgeting behind the eyelids? And the quality of your attention, the mood that you're in, does the mind feel jumpy? Looking for something to think about or pay attention to or does the mind feel slightly Settled, present, does the mind feel bright or dark, tired or alert? All of these factors, your breath, the level of contraction or ease in your body and the quality of your attention play vital roles in determining which issues in life you pay attention to, which you avoid, which situations you move towards and which you retreat from. Now I'd like you to visualize a task that you've been avoiding, putting off, or something that you're perfectionistic about, something that you keep playing with rather than letting go of. And just bring to mind an image that represents this task that you just won't address. It could be something to do with a conversation with someone you've been avoiding. A difficult conversation, or maybe it's something creative, 
maybe it's something towards moving or applying for something or learning a new skill. Just visualize whatever it is you haven't been addressing. And then take a moment to see if you can locate even the subtlest contraction in your belly or your throat. Maybe there's a slight degree of jitteriness in the eyes or your jaws. Very incrementally tightened. Or maybe just holding the image of this activity makes your mind become unsettled or your breath becomes shallower, less comfortable. If you can locate the somatic discomfort associated with tasks we avoid, then we can breathe into them and very often soften. But no worries if you can't find what the Buddha called the Dukkha Vedana. What we'd like you to do now is to put aside that task for a moment. Visualize a time where you, you have completed it, or you have moved, moved forward in your life. Visualize someone that you care about looking at you with a an expression of appreciation, acknowledgement. Visualize the sense that doing this difficult task has been acknowledged and seen, noticed that No one will take it for granted that they'll appreciate the growth. You can even imagine someone being excited for you. If you don't know someone, just visualize someone just giving you this appreciation if it helps, you could put a hand on your heart center. Just create a sense of warmth there. Really breathe into and fill the heart center with warmth. Open gently the chest and pulling back your shoulders. Visualizing your friend looking at you with appreciation. Feel the sense of ease in your body and then bring back to mind that task that you've been avoiding and link it with this feeling of achievement and confidence. Link it with a sense of moving forward embracing your life.
link the image, the thought of this task with strength. Changing very incrementally the feelings that this activity activates. And just keep breathing in, keep feeling the warmth in your chest. Visualize if you need at times someone looking at you with love and appreciation and then bring back that developmental action that we need to take on our behalf. Just linking the positive somatic markers with this activity. slowly let go of any image in your mind, but keep awareness on how you feel in your body. And take your time and very slowly open your eyes just enough to see the ground in front of you. And try to bring this awareness of your body into the rest of your evening. Mindfulness simply means being aware of how you feel internally as you move through your life. So, <clears throat> obviously, it takes a while to relink something that we've been avoiding because it's associated with risk, to rewire to trigger positive somatic markers. But if you do this on a regular basis, every, even for a minute, once a day, for a period, you can actually change the somatic markers. And then as well as doing this, you link the task you've been avoiding, break it down into very small micro-tasks, small amounts, never criticize yourself or judge yourself if you don't do it or move forward, but every time you sit down or put even the slightest amount of effort into it, immediately follow it with a reward or something, call somebody up, just acknowledge, even though it seems, it might sound like, infantilizing to call up and say, I spent five minutes writing. But actually it's not. Because what we're doing is we are, we're doing something very important. We're associating uh, some developmental growth or what Carl Rogers called the growth choice with a positive underlying feelings which will motivate us in the future to continue these growth choices. So, I'm going to switch this recorder off and 